Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club and our discussion of How Should a Person Be, a novel from life by Sheila Hetty. I'm Dan Coyce, editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. Joining me from New York is Megan O'Rourke, a Slate cultural critic. Hi, Megan. Hi, Dan. Also in New York is David Haglin, Slate's Browbeat editor. Hi, David. Hi, Dan. So as in all our audiobook clubs, we recommend that you, the listener, listen to us after you read the book, although in the case of this book, there is not so much to spoil in the traditional sense. How Should a Person Be is written by Toronto writer Sheila Hetty, and it follows a Toronto writer named Sheila as she drinks, talks, worries, takes drugs, fails to write a play, and tries to work out that titular question, how should a person be? How is she to be a woman and an artist and a person in the modern world? And maybe even more important than those questions, how is she to be a friend? Well, the novel includes email conversations with Sheila's mom and dirty letters from a boyfriend and the sad story of Sheila's marriage. It focuses in a large part on the relationship between Sheila and her best friend Margot, which is thrown into turmoil by Sheila's habit of recording their conversations, Margot's doubt about the value of her paintings, and a yellow dress that both women buy. David, you reviewed this book for the Times Book Review a few months ago, and you noted that the Sheila in the book measures herself against Margot and her other friends quite a bit. Uh, all those friends seem to be fictionalized versions of Hetty's actual friends in Toronto as she addresses the riddle of how a person should be. Now, it's safe to say, to spoil the novel, I guess, and say that I think that Sheila doesn't solve the riddle exactly. But can you talk a little bit about that group of friends, Margot, Misha, and Sholem, and Ryan, and what does Hetty 
begin to learn from them. That seems to me to be a great way to start this discussion of this book. I think Sheila's defining feature probably as a character is that she doesn't know how should a person be. She doesn't also even have a feeling for her own attitude toward the world. I mean, I think it's important to distinguish between the question, how should a person be, and the question, what should a person do? I don't think this book is asking, what should I do with my life, so much as it's asking, uh, what is the attitude I want to have toward the world in general and toward myself? And I think she looks to her friends for possible answers to that question, because they seem to have more pronounced attitudes than she does. So, for instance, early in the book, she talks about Misha and Margot and says that, you know, Misha is very responsible and Margot seems irresponsible and she finds both of those qualities attractive. So which one should she adopt for herself? Megan, when I first started reading the book, I thought the friends would maybe serve as a sort of Greek chorus commenting on Sheila, but I, I almost in the end felt like it was the opposite. Like they were the real protagonists of this book and she was the person always observing and commenting on them. I guess for me, the book is really about Sheila. It's about the dissonance between who or what or how Sheila, as the character, feels herself to be in the world and this kind of lack of clarity that she has about her sense of how she appears to the world. Because David was using the word attitude, but also one of the early quotes in the book is she's talking about her friends liking her and she says they like me for who I am and I would rather be liked for who I appear to be and for who I appear to be to be who I am. So I actually read this book as being very much constellated around the kind of almost aesthetic questions that this character Sheila has about being in the world and consequently about being an artist in the world and also as a little sort of subnote about being a female artist in the world. To me, that's kind of the heart of this work. So the friends seemed to me to be important, but important as different models, competing models for appearing to be. And they do, I think, serve as a kind of chorus in terms of expressing attitudes toward art. A lot of this book really is about being an artist and making art. And Margot represents one attitude toward art. She's very skeptical of its effects, Sheila says, but she's very, very dedicated to it. And Different people represent different things. Sholem, one of the other friends, is an artist who's very cautious, maybe too cautious, too needing to be in control of all the time. Yeah, I think so, that's yeah. true of Sholem, and it's true of Misha, probably. And I think you're right that Margot is – there's something different going on with yeah. her. She both is an example for Sheila to look to, but also their relationship and their friendship is also so much of what the book is about. And I think female friendship and – female ambition, which are topics that explicit comments in this book is that there's a lot about women that remain and being female geniuses that remains unexplored and unmodeled. And I think that's part of what's going on here. I did think that relationship, that friendship between the two of them was fascinating, not only in the ways that they do compete with each other a little bit in the ways that it comes apart, but also how desperate they both seem to put it back together at the moments that it falls apart. And they both really reminded me of many women I know, very smart and ambitious and prickly women who, as adults, have had trouble making the kinds of friendships that they remember having in childhood, that those sort of all-consuming friendships with people who you want to spend all your time with are really, really hard to find as an adult for men and for women. But it seems to be a concern that many women I know have really had. Does this seem representative to you guys? I would come back to something Megan said about these also very much being aesthetic questions. 
and that the book really is concerned with being an artist. And in a funny way, Megan mentioned that Margot is skeptical of art's effects, but I don't think she ever seriously considers abandoning art. And in a way, the value of art is sort of taken for granted in a very unusual manner in the book. I think that Sheila never really questions, as far as I can remember, the idea that she will be an artist of some kind. And so she's looking for ways to be an artist. And part of the challenge in terms of her friendship with Margot is that Sheila's way of being an artist draws so much on her friends that she feels like she is sort of using them. And there comes a moment when she decides that she's cheated, that she's avoided really uh, disclosing herself and putting herself into her work and instead is just drawing on her friends. And there's something wrong about that. Well, there is a sense, though, that she's struggling at the very least with this play that she's supposed to write. I mean, she spends much of the book with this play that's been commissioned, a play about women. She says that a Toronto theater company has commissioned that she's been working on for years. And in short summary, sounds, I have to say, kind of terrible but which then seems to transform over the course of the book into the book that's in our hands. You know, Margot gives her permission late in the novel to use those conversations, the conversations that she tape recorded that Margot had been very uncomfortable with. And then Sheila asks her, well, does it have to be a play? And Margot says, no, it doesn't have to be a play. And and Sheila begins to start writing this, it seems, this book that we've been reading. So I do feel like if there isn't the sense that she's ever doubting that she should be an artist, there's certainly the sense that she doubts that she can accomplish what she thinks she ought to accomplish. She talks a lot about the great effects she wants her writing to have, but then is writing in a very determinedly non-heroic mode, a book that is unlikely, as good or bad as it may be, to have the world-shattering effects that she hopes that it might later have. Yeah, and I think she has a lot of irony about those world-shattering effects. I mean, those to me were the most or some of the most broadly comical lines in the book is when she's describing her ambitions for this play, that she wants it to you know, free everyone from slavery and change world conditions and whatever. And I think those are deliberately comical and, and farcical. But I think you're exactly right that, that that is essentially what happens, that she's getting away from writing that play and toward writing this novel. And I think it's worth noting that the play, insofar as we know anything about it, is that it's about women. Mm. She's been commissioned to write a play about women by this feminist theater group. And in a way, the novel, I think, sort of not only rejects the idea of writing a play about women, but really writing a play about anything in that very kind of traditional sense. As a poet, I found this book like extremely painful to read on many, many levels because <laughs> it was basically like giving shape to all of the different voices that go through your head as someone who's sitting around trying to create out of thin air something that the world has not asked for. And there is a kind of vanity in that project. Um, you could argue there is a kind of egotism in that project. Or you could take the other point and say, no, art is necessary. Art does these things in the world. And I think the book is making all these different arguments and giving voice to all of these different pieces at different times and in very funny ways often. I'm not sure that I think this book is entirely successful in all of its strategies. I read it, you know, in one gulp. It's really riveting. It's really engaging. I think one of the things that works best about it, but that 
maybe there could have been more of is the dissonance or the division between Sheila, the character, and Sheila Hetty, the author, and the kind of game playing that is going on by Sheila Hetty, the author, with Sheila Hetty, the character, or Sheila, the character, and the different people, which is to say that there's this play that's a bad play, and then the novel comes out of it, but there's also this kind of faux plot arc of the ugly painting, making the, the book begins by their challenge to make an ugly painting. And sort of a lot of the discussion kind of revolves around this ugly painting that the different artists are going to make. And then that gets dropped as she's also trying to figure out how should a person be. But the ugly painting comes back at the end and is really crucial. So all these things are kind of bouncing off each other in funny ways. <laughs> I came to think that the ugly painting competition did reflect i mean that the novel does is the novel of, the ugly painting that's what it feels I think like so, right? yeah. yeah and it, because the novel is so i think deliberately and very obviously sort of odd and misshapen yeah and the tone really varies and you know there are moments of humor moments of almost pure sort of romantic capital r you know right. wordsworthian romantic writing and i think and dan i'm curious what you think that you know it's kind of a meditation on ugliness and a meditation on these things that a woman maybe isn't supposed to be in, you know, kind of the old fashioned sense of the world. Like, so how should a person be is also how should a woman be? And it's kind of, you know, it's blatantly and frankly sexual in certain ways. It's aggressive in other ways. You know, Sheila, the character, isn't caring toward her friend Margot. She kind of appropriates her words and language. So there's all this from a certain perspective, transgressive of kind of older female norms of niceness and gentility and all that stuff that seems to be going on. And I think she starts by talking about vanity. So it almost seems like she's trying to kind of lay out all of these things that might seem ugly and also kind of show that they're human, too. The cover of the book, in fact, is pictures of book's cover with a mirror on it mm -hmm. that one is meant to be looking in, presumably, the book as a mirror mm -hmm. of the reader. I think you're very right, Megan, that this is meant to be not only a reflection on how a person should be but how a woman should be and how a woman should be an artist. And there's this recurrent complaint in the book, right, that both Margot and Sheila say about just another man who wants to teach me something, about mansplaining basically. And Sheila later in the book gets upset at herself for what she feels is – her drive to constantly try to draw lessons from everything that happens to her and her friends. She uses that same language. She calls herself just another man who wants to teach me something. And this brings me to a point that I really wanted to talk about in this conversation, which is a couple of months ago in the Slate Book Review in a piece that you edited, David, Michelle Dean defended How Should a Person Be against what she saw as an overly patronizing review from James Wood in The New Yorker, one that she characterized not explicitly but implicitly as just another man who wants to teach Sheila Hetty something. Do you guys think that there is the possibility of a gender divide in the way that men and women read this book? I mean the, the subhead that we put on that piece was why smart men have problems with Sheila Hetty's novel. And I'll certainly admit that I had problems with this novel. And, and Megan, you said that you were riveted. Well, I had a lot of problems with the novel. I said I was riveted, yet I was not convinced that this was a successful piece right. of work. But I wasn't even riveted. I mean, I went through long, long stretches where this novel yeah. functionally put me to sleep. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I I'm, I was being, you know, I, I'm riveted and <laughs> I read it very quick. I read it. It's a very easy book to read. Mm -hmm. And so I was riveted by certain passages of it. Well, we should get into that. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, to answer your question about the gender divide, I'm not sure because... That's not I, answering my question. <laughs> <laughs> yes or no? My answer would be a qualified no. I think the divide is not, from my anecdotal experience, not so much between genders. I think there are plenty of women who hate this book as well. I think it has more to do with what you expect from a book 
your attitude towards Sheila, the character in the end, and how you extrapolate from that to your attitude about Sheila Hetty, the author. You know, there have been some very negative reviews from women as well. Would, I thought, you know, I wouldn't have expected him to like the book because it's not the kind of book that he likes. And he has right. a very specific set of ideas. This about is not the, how fiction works. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, it was honestly... I the, thought his review was really smart, actually. I did not think that it was a review that was inflected by gender. I don't think his problems with the book were inflected by gender. No, although I will say... Specifically... Well, go, well I was, I was, I was going to say that I, I do think that he ignored the question of gender yeah. in the review to an odd degree because it is so yeah. much, like you said, it's, yeah. it's very much a book about being a woman. This is what I would say about that review. I think he's very interested in secular. I mean, he sort of starts by talking about the secular shallowness of the book, the, de- the conscious desacralization of culture, which he's actually quite engaged by, but thinks that the writing is a little bit sloppy in a way that doesn't fully work. And I actually thought that he seemed much more interested in this book than I would have necessarily expected right. James Wood, the critic, to be. His critiques were many of the same critiques I had of the book, but I did think he just didn't address the gender issues and that probably what is true is that if you are a woman who's interested in some of these questions, and I'm very interested in a lot of these questions, you're going to have a particular engagement with that aspect of the book. It doesn't make you necessarily like it more because you can think that Hetty didn't handle them successfully, but I think you will be more interested in that part of the book. This is a really hard book to talk about. I've been thinking about it a lot because it's a quite self-aware book, it seems to me. And It's very familiar to me as a kind of object from reading and writing poetry because in poetry there is, you know, this comes wrapped in the kind of subhead, a novel from life. But the strategy of kind of taking yourself and turning yourself into a speaker and slightly fictionalizing but also using real material, that is a strategy that poets use all the time, right? Poetry doesn't have a division between nonfiction and fiction. So this kind of device of creating resonance and dissonance between the speaker who is also the author but isn't the author, is familiar and interesting. And I think that one thing about this book is it has a kind of faux-naïve tone. Sheila, the the narrator, has a kind of faux-naïve tone at times where there's certain things she says that are extremely piercing. There's a lot of game playing going on here. And there's a lot of like purposeful making you feel that something is boring or... She says at one point... That's she, tough. Sheila, the character, says at one point that she thinks it's good to bore people. Yes. Exactly. So, Dan, maybe she just, you know, succeeded yeah. too much with you in that respect. Yeah. There's a long and fruitless argument that will always go on in criticism of art about whether uh, the form needs to follow the function when discussing boredom. One that right. was we discussed last year with David Foster Wallace and The Pale King and one that we'll discuss next year with some other book, I'm sure. Yeah. But I'm intrigued, Megan, by something you just said. There is a lot of game playing in the relationship between Sheila Hetty and Sheila and how smart Sheila Hetty obviously is and how poorly Sheila the character acts and behaves at times. And I mean that game playing is even sort of continuing into the real world. One of the funniest experiences with this book is in – in the article on Slate that accompanied last month's book club where we talked about Gone Girl, I noted that the next month's book would be How Should a Person Be by Sheila Hetty, which I referred to as a novel by Sheila Hetty about a novelist named Sheila Hetty and her friends in Toronto. And Sheila Hetty wrote to us asking for a correction, noting that the character in the novel does not have a last name. Yes. I know. That's why I misspoke before. And yes. I was like, it's not Sheila Hetty. Yeah. Right. She never gives that character a last name. And she was very careful in the real world to make sure that that division between yeah. Sheila Hetty and Sheila is observed. But that's also an extremely playful way 
I mean, she noticed almost instantly. I mean, it was like the day the thing went up. And so I was intrigued. I'm intrigued anew by that relationship between the real person and the character. And, and another thing that intrigued me a little bit more is the role that the marriage plays in this book, the collapse of Sheila's marriage. We meet her husband very early in the book, but she talks about how the marriage collapsed. And it's described really vividly. I actually want to read a section from this. And she is talking about how as – her marriage is coming to a head or at least her feelings about the marriage are coming to a head because I think her husband has no idea that this is happening inside her brain. She keeps having in her head a phrase that goes through it over and over again. This is on page 44 and 45. She says, punch yourself through a brick wall, punch yourself through a brick wall. One evening I saw that the brick wall was, colon, my marriage. A tension came over me, an unbearable feeling of just wanting to get it over with. The wall was there. The pressure could only be released one way. I sat on my hands the entire day, but inside I was hurtling through space and time like a rock, and I told myself not to speak to anyone. But when my husband lay down beside me that night, I turned over and said, as though I had thought it all through, considered his side, and was making a thoughtful decision, I cannot be with you anymore. He'd had no sense of the storm clouds that had been building within me, and when he slammed out of the room, the storm clouds burst into rain, and all over my face and body was the cool wet of relief. Now, that's a pretty amazing sequence, I think, and really quite vivid in a way that so many other parts of the book intentionally are not. I mean, there's nothing banal about these paragraphs. And so reading this and thinking about the role the husband plays in the book, he disappears, unlike her other friends he's never named, made me wish that this part of the book had been something that she explored more. Maybe I'm just another man who's trying to teach her something, but I wish that there had been more here. And I wished even more that there had been more when I learned from other reviews of this book that the husband, Sheila Hetty's actual ex-husband, is Carl Wilson, the Toronto critic who's the author of one of my favorite books, uh, Let's Talk About Love, which is a book about taste as viewed through the prism of Celine Dion. So did you wish that there was more of this relationship or more of this kind of writing in this book the way I desperately did over and over again? Or did the deliberate messiness of it in the end work for you? I don't think that the deliberate messiness of the book totally worked for me. But I just think that asking the book to do that is to make it a totally different book. And I, as a fellow artist, feel I have to respect her choice not to want to write that book. So I you know, accepted that as an artistic choice. I think that the writing in this passage is really good. It is definitely, I think, one of the best passages of writing. And it is, of course, much more figurative than a lot of the writing. So I did want this book to be different in some ways. But I think I wanted mostly, I don't know, it's hard, right? Because your desires for the book start to interfere with what the book is and what the book's desire for itself to be is. Which is to say, I'm agreeing with you, Dan. Like, I did like this passage and I would have loved more of it. But then that's not really what this book is up to. I guess I wish that I wasn't sure that the patterning in this book and that the questions and the working out of the questions was always dense enough. In other words, like this kind of faux naive and the boredom and all that, like maybe there needs to be kind of more density to it in passages like that great gravedigger passage at the end, Mm -hmm. which is a really important part of the book. I agree with a lot of what Megan just said. I think that if she had decided to attend more to the husband, which would be sort of more of the traditional thing to do, it would have become a more conventional novel. And some of the reviews that I read seemed to want that, and I didn't. I mean, that's not the kind of book that this is. And while it's not always entirely satisfying, you know, I, I read this book months ago, and I picked it up again, uh, reading over various passages before this conversation, and found myself immediately sucked back in. I do think it's really engaging and a really interesting book. And I'm glad that 
a book like this exists and is not another conventional novel, even though I think that those can still be done very well. Look, you know, let's talk about gender for a second. I mean, I think partly it is that expectation, like if a woman is going through a marriage, we're going to hear more about it. And I relate to the critique of this personally, because I wrote about the end of my marriage in my memoir. And that was one of the critiques was that I didn't say very much about it. But it wasn't a book about my marriage. It was a book about grief. So I really have no, like on a personal level, I kind of think she doesn't have to do that. This is a book to me about the primacy of making art in a woman's life. And if she had written more about her husband, it would have undercut the very mission of the book. Now, that's not to say that maybe other things about the book could have been addressed differently or or done differently. And and in fact, one of James Wood's critiques is that Hetty is capable of being a writer of the kind of passage that you just read, Dan, and a kind of pellucid, clear, intense, stripped down writing. But there's a lot of you know, very colloquial vernacular language here that's not as engaging. And that was his problem with the book. There were long sections of the book in which the writing to me just seemed so shaggy and aimless that it essentially did nothing for me. And so I... Like which sections? I'm curious. It's the long interior sections in which she's theoretically wrestling with ideas in which I don't really feel like she's wrestling with ideas. Mm. She's just sort of talking about them in sort of a, a, a nearly stream-of-consciousness fashion. I know exactly what you're talking about. I guess what I mean is that she's capable, obviously, of sections of great emotional power, and she's capable of sections of great intellectual power, where she does wrestle with these questions in fascinating ways. But that's still left big, like two to three to four-page chunks of this book, where I completely tuned out where I just felt like I wasn't engaged at all. And in a book like this, where it's obvious that she knows what she's doing and there's nothing that's unintentional in this book, it makes me wonder, well, is that my fault as a reader? Or am I simply like not dialed in to Sheila Hetty's frequency so that the only messages that I get are the loudest, clearest ones that she writes for dummies like me and the more subtle stuff I just for some reason cannot grok or grasp? It was not a book that I finished feeling satisfied by in all of the ways I had hoped to. And I guess that's why I'm using that word density. I think I'm trying to describe exactly what you're talking about, Dan, that there were sections where she is wrestling with ideas, but again, in this kind of faux naive voice. And I I don't know. I mean, it's crucial to remember this character is very young. She's in her 20s. I think maybe in my 20s, I would have, I don't know. I I find it hard to be kind of frustrated by the speaker narrator or feel that I'm seeing more or that she's not going as deep into something as she could be. And and that was a problem I had in places here. Does that make sense? I find it very hard to talk about this book because I want to give credit to what I think it's doing, right. but also try to register some of my hesitations. And I'm finding that difficult, which is to the book's credit, probably. I think that picks up on one of the trickier things about the book, which was ignored, I think, or missed maybe by some reviewers, which is that she's writing about... a significantly younger version of herself. And yet... character. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. Yeah, sure. You know, something in between. Mm -hmm. I mean, and there is irony involved. Mm. But it's not withering. It's extremely unwithering. And maybe I (laughs) wanted it to be more withering. And and again, I think that's another way it could have become a more conventional book and one that maybe also would have satisfied more readers or at least different readers. Uh, I think people would have enjoyed this kind of comic, sarcastic take on... Uh, a young artist in her 20s, but instead she's much more affectionate toward her previous self or some version of it. So it's a little bit indulgent. I mean, it's meant to be indulgent, but then you have to really police that formally and aesthetically. And I think if this book had been much shorter, it might have been 
to me as a reader, a slightly more successful piece of work. David, I'm fascinated by this point you made about withering irony because one of the things that I was thinking about a lot in reading this, as many reviewers have, as you dealt with in your review, is are the parallels between this and girls, right, between Lena Dunham's HBO series Girls. I mean, you've illuminated to me, I think, the reason why girls spoke to me so clearly and this didn't, at least one reason is that girls, even though Lena Dunham is essentially the age of the character she's playing, she views that character with a lot more withering irony than Sheila Hetty 10 years later views Sheila, the character who she sort of once was. Yeah, I think that's true. And I do think that is part of what makes this book challenging you know, challenging may sound like, you know, again, I'm saying you don't get it or something. You don't have it's to think cool. it's successful. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, you don't have to find it successful, but I do think that in a way that what she's doing in that respect is more difficult, you know, to not be dismissive. And I love girls too. And I, I don't think that Dunham is entirely dismissive of her character either, but it is more affectionate than that. You know, this is maybe something of a non sequitur, but I was struck looking over it again about this, uh, by this section where she talks to these two guys who work in theater who have gone to Africa. I had sort of forgotten that section, but it was one place where they went to Africa because they felt like their art was not doing enough and they were too mm -hmm. self-involved. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the more withering parts of the book. Hetty, I mean, is a little bit crueler, I think, to those two characters than she is to most of them. I think the chapter is titled something like, you know, white men go to Africa or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's not kind. And it engages with one of the other criticisms of this book, which is that it's it's sort of too self-involved, that it's too indulgent. And I think it's an implicit defense of what she's doing. Narcissism comes up a lot in this book, you know. Right. Um, well, and those guys keep talking about how they felt they were being narcissistic in their earlier work. Right. And either Sheila or Margot says, you guys keep using that word. What do you mean by it? Yeah. And it seems like a real kind of swipe at those I two. guess that's maybe the question, the critical question is, you know, is the book's relationship to narcissism, its own narcissism, its staging of narcissism, the drama of the, you know, is the drama made of narcissism here sufficient? Does it have enough texture? Is it deep enough to really hold your attention? And one test is always rereading, right? right. And rereading, I definitely did find things that I hadn't totally seen before. But I think that there's some slackness here. Here. I'd love to follow up on that and to maybe conclude our conversation. I want to talk a little bit about the ending of the book, which brings us back to the ugly painting competition between Shalem and Margot. They both approach it in different ways. Shalem made his painting right away, trying to get the ugliness out of his head, but then finds it like sticks with him and he can't get rid of it. Then Margot takes forever to make her ugly painting, but then her actual painting she makes is sort of a failure because she's so talented she can't help but make parts of it beautiful. And so they decide – they can't decide who wins, so they decide to play a game of squash to see who wins the contest. And so Shalem and Margot put on their athletic gear, their kits, and they go into the squash court and they start playing. And up above on the balcony, um, Sheila and Misha and, and another friend are sitting there watching them and the action is fast and furious and both players are playing very aggressively. But then after a while of playing, the people up on the balcony realize that not only do they not know the score – that Margot and Shalem don't actually even know the rules of squash. And that's how the book ends with John saying, I don't think they even know the rules. I think they're just slamming the ball around. And so they were. So if we think of this book as an entry, essentially, in the ugly painting competition, and then we think of this scene then as, as essentially saying, well, there is functionally no way to judge 
something like this. There's no way to quantify the effect of a book that is meant to do the things that this book does. I guess I would ask, have we been wasting our time for the last 43 minutes? No. <laughs> that would be defeat for everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think Sheila Hetty, the author, wants us to not ask these questions or have these conversations. I think the book is so full of this kind of conversation, right? right? Mm-hmm. I really love that closing scene, actually, and that, that closing paragraph. And it seemed to reflect back so well on the book that it's not about winning. I mean, that she's hitting, you know, this ball back and forth with her friends. And there's a way in which that can be really frustrating. You know, I don't know if if you've had this experience, but, you know, I've certainly been with friends, say, on a basketball court. I love to play basketball and I just (laughs) want to play a game and keep score. And I do have friends who are much more content to just play and just throw the ball around. And there's a part of me that struggles with that. And I do think that's part of what she's getting at with that final scene. And it's a bit of a lesson for the character, right? Because the character is, in a sense, starts with scorekeeping. How should I be the preoccupation with celebrity and wanting to be famous in a particular kind of way? And then this is kind of just the loss in the game itself. The the game is all, as it were. I thought it was an astonishingly good ending for a book that I could never have imagined how it would end before I got here. But for that reason, I also found it frustrating because, I mean, as you say, Megan, this section is dense and it has texture mm-hmm. and it folds the preoccupations of the novel into a very artful form that even a dummy like me can process. And so it just frustrated me in the end that more of the book wasn't as artful as this, even though I know that that's the opposite of what the book is meant to be. And so in in the end, I feel like my frustrations with this book overwhelmed my pleasure in this book, although maybe that's exactly what Sheila Hetty wants. God, I'm playing right into her hands. God, you're playing right into her hands. <laughs> I share a lot of your feelings. Yeah. Let's put it this way. I definitely want to read her next novel, right? I mean, I'm curious right. to see what she's up to. And, you know, I felt like this book was a little bit of a mood ring. You know, like in different moods, I had different relations to different parts of it. Um, too. Yeah. yeah. Even though there are sections that, like the end, as you say, is a kind of artful density. And then the artfulness of the rest of it is designed to frustrate. It's worth noting, uh, I think, that her uh, other books are very different. Yeah. I read them when I was working on the review, and that did provide a backdrop for me because her previous book, Ticknor, is very dense. I like this book better, actually, but it's a very carefully worked over book about this actual character who lived more than 100 years ago. And another book she wrote is a collection of very quickly written sort of fairy tale riffs. Mm. So I do think that she's experimenting and trying different things with each of her books. And again, I'm very curious what the next one will be. I guess that's the best measure of a book like this. If it's designed to frustrate, does it at least make you feel excited about the next thing that she will do? And it did do that for me. And so I guess not to go against the lesson of the squash match, but I guess that this book is a success in that fashion. To me, it's very hard to separate out some of my reaction to the book from also being someone who tries to make art and work, because this book is just so much about that. And I think if you are someone doing that, like there's a lot you recognize, there's a lot of conversations you have with yourself that are framed differently from how I would frame them, but it's there, right? And all of the kind of like banal shallowness and the crazy messianic daydreams you have and And the real question, which is a quite weighty question of, you know, is this narcissistic, which Margot asks and and Sheila says, no, this isn't narcissistic. But then she says, how do I know? You know, that's a real question, I think, for people making 
paintings, making novels, making plays, and the book does really engage you on that level. I think that's the perfect conclusion to this conversation. (laughs) Thank you, David, and thank you, Megan, for joining me for this. Thanks, Dan. Dan. A program note, our next audiobook club selection is Cloud Atlas, the 2004 novel by David Mitchell that's been adapted by the Wachowski siblings into what looks to be the oversized Crazy Pants movie event of the fall. So please read the book or reread it. It's uh, quite fabulous. See the movie when it opens on October 26th. I don't know if it's fabulous, but then join us for our discussion, which will go live on November 2nd. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Megan O'Rourke and David Hagelin, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.